The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They also come against law firms, right? They've recognized that all your intellectual property goes to your law firm as you consider patents and trademarks. Um, that when there's mergers and acquisitions in the ecosystem, it goes all the information goes to law firms, and, and so that's become a place where there's there's easy pickings to collect data there instead of trying to go at the major defense company. So so you know the the operations are always going to be creative in trying to find the weak link and the way around um, the defenses. And so, you know, there's never going to be a day that we're done working cybersecurity and it's solved. We're going to have to keep following the adversary and addressing whatever their newest line of activity is. I'm David Chris, And I'm Brian Cunningham, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 7th, 2023. Rob Joyce is the director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. He's been NSA's top cryptologic representative in the United Kingdom and has also worked in the U.S. National Security Council. We talk with Rob about his career trajectory, the quantum decryption threat, and strategic competition in cyber with the People's Republic of China and cooperation between the private sector and the government in cyberspace. The discussion with Rob continues our series of podcasts with U.S. cyber leaders, including Chris Inglis, Kemba Walden, Jen Easterly, and others. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 7th, 2023. Rob Joyce, NSA Director of Cybersecurity. You're the Director of Cybersecurity at the National Security Agency, and you've been with the agency for a good long time. Uh, You've got some personal history with cyber matters. Can you tell our audience a little bit about how you ended up in this amazing and important job you're holding now? Sure, David. I've been with NSA 34 years. Um, I came in straight out of college into an internship where I got exposed to both of NSA's missions, the cybersecurity mission, but also the foreign signals intelligence mission. And those two halves of NSA really make up the capabilities that we bring to the nation. I spent a good chunk of my career in the signals intelligence producing uh, that foreign intelligence. 
but I've moved back and forth across the two missions. And we really think that's a huge benefit. You know, the phrase, it takes a thief to catch a thief kind of comes to mind. And, and what I've found is people that are exposed to both sides think differently. You learn new things when you're defending important networks and you bring a different mindset to defending if you've previously gone in and tried to exploit those networks. So that's kind of how I wound up here. Let me ask you a question about that, Rob, because I had a similar experience. I was a career trainee at the Central Intelligence Agency, almost right out of college. And I, I agree with you about the way that it prepares you for kind of all sides of the business. But if my math is right, when you entered the National Security Agency, most of us had never heard of cybersecurity or even cyber attacks. Were you guys on that forever or did that happen while you were there? Yeah, no. NSA has been doing cyber since before cyber was cool. So um, back in the early days, the information security mission, the computer security mission has been a core capability. NSA was involved in the early days of the internet, securing and defending as more and more things were put into digital form. Um, so one of the responsibilities I have is um, we do the keys, codes, and crypto for any national security system. So that's any system that carries classified information that is involved in warfighting activities or the production, um, command, and control of those military activities. So early on, NSA, by doing that that encryption line of work, developed a lot of expertise in things, all things digital. And that carried through to um, those of you who have been involved in information security. There were a series of specifications for um, securing the internet. They were the rainbow series of books that described cybersecurity requirements for the government. And those were kind of the first best practices for securing the internet came out of NSA decades ago. So, Rob, it used to be called Information Assurance, and then the Cybersecurity Division, which you now lead, was created recently. Do you have that whole mission, and when did NSA switch over from talking about Information Assurance to Cybersecurity? Yeah, so about three years ago, we created, a little over three years ago, we created the Cybersecurity Directorate, and there's three major changes when we did that. The first is we married together those two powers of NSA, but especially using that foreign intelligence mission to inform the threats that are coming at our networks and capabilities. So we took the SIGINT people who were worried about threat actors, whether they be Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, cyber criminals, and they actually work for me now. Um, So I have linguists and analysts um, working through collection on those foreign adversaries who would target national security systems and critical infrastructure. And so that gives us a view into the threat landscape. That is um, the ability to reach in and see their plans, intentions, operations, successes, and even frustrations. Um, So that's one big change. We brought that threat-informed mission into cybersecurity. The second thing we did is, um, and you referenced it, was create the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. That's an, an operation that takes those things we know from that classified work 
and figures out how to work with industry um, to operationalize that knowledge. So um, what I've come to learn over the last couple of years is what we know is not nearly as sensitive as how we know it. So as we use those exquisite intelligence capabilities and learn about threats, we can actually sanitize and get that threat information to the people who can, who can action it without threatening the sources and methods. And so our collaboration center does that with industry all the time. Um, so we work daily with companies to um, inform them about the threat, but also partner with them on analyzing things that they're seeing. And, and you know, the, the cybersecurity community and industry has so much talent, understanding, and reach that that's really impressive. Then the third area that is kind of new is we have an ad an activity we call adversary defeat, which is intended to find partners who can use our knowledge, skills, and capabilities um, to give an adversary a bad day. And, you know, that's partners as close as Cyber Command, but also, um, you know, CISA, FBI, and even Treasury, State Department, and and others um, to include industry, uh, because what we want to do is help secure that ecosystem. So before we step away from that topic, Rob, how would a company that wanted to try to either get information from NSA or, or help with your mission, how would they get a hold of you? What's the right way to, to plug in? Well, if you go to the NSA website, there's a, there's a cybersecurity link that'll take you to our cybersecurity collaboration center. But our, our authorities are fairly specific. So we are um, part of the Department of Defense and have DOD's authorities to work with defending the defense industrial base. And so, you know, all the major defense companies you would think about are folks that we help support. But more importantly, the Defense Department relies on that whole tech ecosystem, whether it's the hyperscale cloud providers, the internet service providers, telcos, incident response firms, and major sectors of technology. We work with them as well, because what we found is we can take the knowledge of a threat and work with one of those major providers, and they can then secure at scale. So while my focus is on that defense industrial base, when I when I close down a threat to those DIB companies, the internet service providers, the cloud providers, they don't just protect the the big DOD companies, they protect their whole customer base. So what we see is when we take a Russia threat and a tool that has been exposed in Ukraine and we give that to one of the major um, the major providers or give it to all of the major providers, what we find are billions of endpoints are protected. So it's um, throughout the DOD, throughout U.S. government, throughout critical infrastructure, the major commercial businesses, but even partners and allies overseas and you and I at home. So that's how we primarily get to scale is you know through these selection criteria that get us with the biggest companies that then can defend across large swaths of the ecosystem. So when you focus on the DIB, but you're using these providers for, for broader leverage, you're having a much, much broader effect. But 
Can we talk a little bit about how you think about the DIB? I mean, you know, the defense industrial base, if you take a wide enough view of it, is actually pretty vast. It isn't just, say, Lockheed Martin or some traditional defense contractor. And can you tell a little bit about how you interact directly with those kinds of companies? Yeah, so so you're right, David. If if you look, the vast majority of DoD spending is with a handful, you know, less than 20 major companies. But then those companies subcontract into the ecosystem where there's some 30,000 cleared defense contractors. And so they have classified information and significant secrets. Beneath them, though, there's more than 300,000 companies who do something in support of DOD's supply chain. And that's, you know, everything from production of little metal widgets that are in the supply chain to chips and capabilities and other things. And and that scale to interact with even 30,000, let alone 300,000, is a daunting task. So with that, we've taken this approach to work with the giants in the industry. And, and so getting our threat information at an unclassified level to those that can action it is the priority. And most of those big companies have really highly qualified teams that are working, understand their platform, understand the threats. And what we can bring is the look of the foreign information um, in context. And often that's what we add is they already see some of these threats, but they don't understand it in context, what the plans, intentions, or actual operations are. And when we meet them in the middle and we both bring our specialized and unique knowledge, it can often turn into an exceptionally bad day for those adversaries. So like that's your secret sauce, the combination of your SIGINT authorities and your foreign intelligence authorities on the one side and your defensive efforts on the other, because obviously you can do things that people, other people can't do either legally or technically. Yeah, a- absolutely, David. And I would also throw in on top of that is the the continuous engagement by deeply technical folks who are working this on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's it's always been the case that people wanted more information sharing, and that went both ways. The government was famous for, give me your stuff, right? I want to know your data. Give me your, your information. A- and Companies who did try to enter into that type of arrangement threw it over the fence to us and others, and they wouldn't hear anything back. And And so that wasn't very motivating or effective. It didn't give them any benefit in cybersecurity that they could see. It was only benefiting the government. Similarly, at times, we would produce threats and we would throw it out there. And we would hand without context, you know, a a piece of information, sometimes even passing it through third parties. And what we found was that was tremendously ineffective, that 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 information often wasn't specific or actionable enough. And there was no feedback loop to tell us that or to understand that if we added something to it, um, it would be so much more useful. And so now this bi-directional joint analysis daily interaction directly between people who have digital bits underneath their fingernails on the government side and on industry side, that creates this magical relationship where the outcomes happen. So this is a remarkable amount of candor. And 
makes me want to have us jump in the Wayback Machine for a minute. Those of us who remember the 70s remember, I think this is true, that it was actually at one time illegal to refer to the National Security Agency, much less where it was or what it did. And I think the first public speech by an NSA director was 1979. So times have changed. And why, why is that? And, and what, what is different now than, say, when David and I were in middle school? Yeah, Brian, when, when I joined, the the joke was NSA stood for no such agency. Right? Right. It, it right. was um, lightly avowed, but I'll tell you, when I was getting ready to talk to the recruiter that visited my college, I had never heard of NSA. Um, I did a little research to try to understand and found very little public knowledge about it. We've had to adapt. For one thing, you know, I think there were scars when we had the the Snowden leaks because NSA was so so constrained in its engagement. Um, we actually didn't know how to talk about what we were doing and why we were doing it, and, and so the vacuum of information got filled with misstatements and misperceptions. And, and so there, there's been a recognition that we have to be more open and transparent. And then in my world, you know, I've got to be interacting with the expertise that defends and secures the internet. And that is primarily in private industry. And so I think, you know, if you followed me, I've spent a number of years engaging for NSA, whether it's at DEF CON or RSA or, you know, things like the Enigma um, conference, where we have to connect and bring our expertise out into the public space and engage in dialogue about what we're doing and why, but also, you know, meet the, the, the industry players who are passionate, just like we are at the service of securing the internet and make those connections. So really that's the difference is, um, you know, it's 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 hard won lessons about you know there there needs to be an understanding of how we do oversight and why we do our missions and what are the authorities and the the safety and guardrails and checks and balances, but also about the capabilities and if we're not out there engaging, we have no venues or or relationships to share the things that we have that will wind up in really important security outcomes. Hey, so Rob, let me pull that thread a little bit. So considering the agency's evolution from no such agency to the present, you, you talked about the Snowden uh, leaks as a Rubicon there. Would you say that the Ukraine conflict and the active use of intelligence in that context was another one? And do you think the agency has culturally evolved as far as it needs to, away from no such agency. I mean, I'm thinking the UK just released a cybersecurity strategy document the other day. And it was, I looked at it, it was it's pretty hard to imagine the US government producing anything that candid about operations. So how do you assess the evolution of, of the culture of secrecy at, at NSA uh, after Snowden? And how, and how much more work do you think, if any, needs to be done? Yeah, we're, we're certainly still on a journey. I know even in my organization where I can point to outcomes each and every day from taking classified intelligence and then finding ways to sanitize it for operational use, 
there's still a healthy debate about you know the 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 boundary and where to set the dial and there's there's still people inside the culture that ha- have not gotten the religion of how much we enable through the the actions and use of our um, our knowledge so i i'm very focused on the idea that if we know a thing it's of no use unless we find a way to share it and use it. John Darby was very famous for his his quote where he would go around inside and outside and talk about the intelligence side of NSA, the SIGINT side, that it wasn't in business to build libraries. And by that, he meant it, SIGINT and intelligence production was of no value if you're just writing a report and it goes on the shelf. It's got to get to the people who can use it. And in the intelligence world at times, you know, that's decision makers, that's the warfighters, that's the policy makers, so that they can truly be informed about the state of affairs. And at times you'll see things where the right audience is reached through the White House podium. And at other times it's through the relationships here at the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center where we're pushing our knowledge into industry who has the ability to act. Yeah, the the change in the use of classified information in statecraft in this, I'd say, last three to four years has really been breathtaking and <laughs> would have been shocking to my CIA self 20 years ago. You know, and of course, I'm speaking about things like exposing to the world the misinformation and deception operations that we thought Russia would do before the Ukraine war. I'm not asking you to comment on that, but would you say NSA has been moving in the direction of operationalizing intelligence before the current administration, or is that really more of a policy change driven from the top? It's an evolution and a journey. We certainly have been moving that way for years. But I would also say that, you know, across the IC, you've seen us experiment and learn from the decision making of, you know, when you use a piece of information and in what venue and channel. Well, let's talk a little more about Ukraine, because obviously that was a locus for the active use of intelligence for effects and to maintain diplomatic coherence and so forth. I mean, what what other lessons have you guys drawn from the invasion of Ukraine? Uh, there's been public discussion of the significance and extent of Russia's cyber attack efforts and your efforts in partnership with industry and in resisting them. Tell us a little bit about sort of the lessons you've drawn from what's been going on in Ukraine cyber-wise. Yeah, there's there's a lot of lessons learned, um, David. One one lesson is that you can actively improve your cyber resilience. If you look at the Ukrainians, they've come an enormous distance um, from when the Russians were able to take down their electric grid through cyber to you know the resilient nature of their networks and energy grid, despite ongoing significant attacks by the Russians. So how how did they get there? You know, one is the experience. Um, The Ukrainians have been under cyber pressure. I I mentioned, you know, the the grid attacks all the way up through NotPetya being launched against their country. But they've gotten to the point where they understand they are a target and they do things that improve their resilience, like 
they really pay attention to the basics. That cybersecurity 101, the things you know you're supposed to do, makes you a much harder target. And that's everything from strong passwords to multi-factor authentication to patching and upgrading to the removal of vulnerable devices out through rigorous backups and checking your backups. You know, when the Ukrainians come in and one of their servers popped, they shrug it right off. They wipe the machine, they recover from backup, and they get on with it. Um, They are exceptionally resilient. The other thing we learned about was the difference between trying to defend yourself and getting the community to defend you. So um, as it was clear the, the invasion was going to happen, there was a large effort where um, the U.S. government helped the Ukrainians in a number of cybersecurity things, both um, with advice, support, and funding. But industry rose to it as well, where they even voluntarily offered services. And and, and between that aid and the voluntary things that industry was doing, a lot of on-premise data centers and, and servers in closets and critical nodes that were just sitting under someone's desk, those got protected by moving to the large cloud providers. And going to the cloud providers, they went from, you know, two people who would work weekdays to upgrade and defend the system to a whole host and team of people who worked 24-7 and had hundreds of security experts and were looking across a number of different um, targets to understand as Tradecraft was used on one that it could be applied to secure all. And the, the security improvements by getting into a cloud provider with a full-time security team that has you know, connections to absorb the threat information that NSA is providing that whole ecosystem wound up making them exceptionally resilient. So that was one of my big takeaways is you can become more resilient and there's uh, there's a lot of things and lessons learned from Ukraine that shows um, that resilience. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's kind of comforting, I guess, for many of the rest of us to hear you say that some of the things that helped them were things like patching (laughs) and uh, using two-factor authentication. Uh, These are... These are things that many normal humans can relate to. You're very positive in describing the benefits of working with industry. But I mean, sometimes it might be the case that NSA does something truly nifty and then enables it through industry. Does it ever ever rub you the wrong way that industry might be taking credit for insights that your agency has generated? Or is that just... uh, Nope. 
part of the nope. way it works. A, a win is a win. Um, so, you know, we have more than 300 partners here at the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. And we started with one a little over two years ago, right? And every single one of those partners is 100% voluntary. They come and work with us because they see a benefit to either their company, their customers, um, their brand and reputation. But but they invest their resources, you know, in that noble outcome of cybersecurity betterment for the world. And I don't care if there's an NSA logo on there or not. The company knows um, the contributions we're making. And if they go out with a better product, they stop an intrusion. If they put out a blog that then lets the whole industry um, dogpile onto a threat, all of those are awesome outcomes. And, you know, the, the partnerships will continue and grow because they're having those outcomes. So, um, no, the fact that there's a, a little NSA magic behind some of those wins, we take pride in it, but um, the, the outcomes are what matter. Sounds like you should be called no such ego over there. <laughs> so, this is this is relentlessly positive. We got to change that a little bit. <laughs> uh, so talk about now pivoting from Russia, Ukraine, talk about the China threat, quantum decryption, TikTok, things that we don't even know are threats that we should care about. What What is your agency's view on China right now? Yeah, China is the enduring problem. So while there is a shooting war, the first in decades in Europe, um, you know, the, the issue is long term, China is that threat. And they're a challenge across a number of facets. But one of the key things we still see them penetrating companies, stealing intellectual property, and just um, on a grand scale. So I'll highlight back to the Hafnium exploitation where more than a year ago there was a there was a discovery of a zero day in some Microsoft Exchange servers and the community um, started addressing it it became public you need to you need to patch and defend your systems and before the the general ecosystem was secure um, those Chinese actors really surprised us. They didn't slink away the way most intelligence or nation state operations do when they got caught. They doubled down and they ran a script that just scanned every device on the internet to see if it was vulnerable to this attack. And they exploited tens of thousands of machines across the internet. They just made this huge land grab. And we were amazed at how brazen and loud and in your face that was it was a smash and grab robbery across the internet and so you know there there are silent and quiet activities but they're also willing to just be really egregious in the exploitation and theft and that's not slowing or stopping i'm glad you mentioned that that massive sort of indiscriminate type of attack because David and I, in our day jobs, sometimes advise companies on cybersecurity. And I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, a small or medium-sized company will say, well, why would China care about us? We're not, we don't have anything they want. And I say, well, they're just going to grab everything. Even if they can't decrypt it now, they're going to grab everything so they can decrypt it later. And that's a real thing, right? I mean, the, the tool just scans the internet looking for vulnerabilities. They don't care who you are in the first instance. 
Yeah, there's there's both targeted and opportunistic exploitation going on. So through through China, you know, if you're one of the big defense contractors, they are coming for you. The good news is the defense contractors have gotten very very good at securing their ecosystem. But where the challenges are is that they have subcontractors who have access to information, and sometimes those are companies of one person or three people without even a a CISO cybersecurity team. They also come against law firms, right? They've recognized that all your intellectual property goes to your law firm as you consider patents and trademarks. Um, that when there's mergers and acquisitions in the ecosystem, it goes all the information goes to law firms, and, and so that's become a place where there's there's easy pickings to collect data there instead of trying to go at the major defense company. So so you know the the operations are always going to be creative in trying to find the weak link and the way around um, the defenses. And so, you know, there's never going to be a day that we're done working cybersecurity and it's solved. We're going to have to keep following the adversary and addressing whatever their newest line of activity is. But, but I will tell you, we're, we're using our intelligence capability to talk about the ways they're being successful. So you'll see us put out with CISA and even the Five Eyes, these products that have joint seals you know, CISA, FBI, NSA, talking about the top 20 most exploited vulnerabilities. So these are things that that we know are flaws in systems, networks, or configurations, and they're completely avoidable problems. And so those are the things the Chinese are actively looking for because they work. And so paying attention to those advisories and then closing down those activities make you much less likely to be exploited. Well, you'll be happy to know Jen Easterly made a similar point in our discussions with her on that. Rob, if you can tell us without having to kill us, can you talk about PRC's use of U.S. infrastructure, uh, either in the smash and grab indiscriminate or in the more targeted attacks? And any progress on like know your customer efforts with respect to U.S. infrastructure being rented out or used? Yeah, so the Chinese and other actors have recognized that we do this foreign intelligence mission really well. And what they found is by either renting infrastructure under false identities, they can get inside the wire or by hacking things in the U.S. and going through them, they can emerge inside the operational space where we have the, you know, the, the protections of, of warrants and the impediments that keep us from moving at pace and scale. So they've found that our home field advantage is actually a home field liability and they can use infrastructure inside the U.S. to create blind spots. Now, the good news is that's the space of industry, and that's why this marriage has has worked really well. You, for good reason, don't want NSA having access to domestic U.S. infrastructure. But if the company who has that infrastructure can take a, a lead from NSA that says, hey, this 
piece of infrastructure is being used by the Chinese, check it out, validate it, and verify it. They can go into their own operational network and find that activity. And then they can bring back out things associated with it that they have done that due diligence and and independent check and very narrowly constrained for sharing back with the government to address the foreign intrusion. And that's one of the reasons, you know, you hear me so positive about this relationship is it not only serves an operational purpose because the company has the knowledge and the, the specificity of what's going on in their network, what's normal, not normal, but it provides this check and balance where, you know, the government doesn't have access to bulk things. It has access to stuff that the company has chosen to understand is malicious and serves a purpose to connect to other leads that we know about. And so just to um, give you an opportunity to commit news here on our podcast, uh, it sounds like NSA not currently seeking new domestic uh, spying authorities uh, in no. connection with this need. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? We've got, we've got our FBI friends, we've got, uh, we've got industry, and you know they, they can handle that piece But I will tell you one thing when we're going to authorities, uh, there is a vital authority, and and that's uh, the FISA FAA Section 702 that's up for renewal. And, you know, the the debate on that authority is going to be really critical um, to cybersecurity. That is an authority that lets us pursue foreign actors who are using U.S. infrastructure. You know, I talked about that home field advantage, the idea that we would allow the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians um, to have safe harbor inside our networks and not have a tool uh, to produce that intelligence and, and see that threat. That's a critical gap, and we can't let 702 lapse. Let me ask you a specific question about that, Rob, because you know, this is the Lawfare Podcast. We have a lot of lawyers and a lot of national security lawyers. But uh, due to David's uh, star power, we have a lot of non-lawyers that uh, listen also. Can you give us an example of wh- how life would be different for threats to our country if 702 were allowed to expire? What, what can you do now that you couldn't do then that would, would increase our, our risk? Yeah, so if I have a Chinese actor a known foreign, you know, China PLA associated actor, and they create a free webmail address in the U.S. and then use that to create phishing and attacks against U.S. companies. You know, that process is something that I can't collect in foreign space because of the nature of the encrypted connection to that webmail provider. Um, So it's a blind spot. But if I can get the authority to collect it based on FAA 702, that's an opportunity then to make that foreign communication using U.S. infrastructure um, visible. And, and, you know, that's that's just such a foundational, fundamental, important thing. So can we just nerd out a bit on the legal side of this because you've provoked me? I mean, so, you know, one of the ideas behind 702, Rob, which I think you're hitting on, but I just want to elaborate and have you confirm for the audience is, is, you know, in the olden days, it was mostly about international terrorism, but you could have a, a, a bad guy, international terrorist in the country of Zendar 
with absolutely no ties to the United States whatsoever, a fully unconnected person, not part of the Fourth Amendment, the people or whatever, talking to another such person. And all they did was go to a cyber cafe in the country of Zendar and open a free email account with a U.S. provider. And solely because of that, they were given the sort of platinum standard, gold standard protections of traditional FISA, you know, one target, one facility, probable cause and all that with an Article Three judge ruling. And one of the ideas of 702 is that maybe those persons don't deserve the full Fourth Amendment and statutory protections. That's what you're talking about now, but in a cyber context with a Chinese IO or a People's Liberation Army representative renting U.S. infrastructure and enjoying full protections unless 702 is reauthorized. Is that, am I getting that right or? That is outstanding, David. So since since I don't have my NSA lawyer here uh, to, <laughs> to go into the details. April, are you listening? <laughs> you as the proxy um, and your former DOJ experience is outstanding. Thank you. So um, switching gears a little bit, Brian mentioned it before, but I want to hit it again. A lot of people are, I think, quite rightly concerned about quantum computing. Uh, quantum technology obviously has a lot of positive things to offer in a whole variety of different fields. But one of the risks is maybe the idea that a quantum computer is going to come along somewhere between you know, one and 50 years from now and blow up our encryption in the civilian space, maybe the military space. Can you tell us a little bit about the risks of uh, quantum computing for encryption and what you guys are doing about it? Sure. There are certain elements of encryption that take advantage of the fact that there's hard math problems. Factoring large numbers is a really hard problem. You can take two prime numbers and put them together easily. That's an easy math problem. But taking them apart, uh, taking the resultant factors of a large number, breaking them back down into the primes, is an exceptionally hard computationally intensive problem that that is used in some forms of encryption, public key encryption, as the basis of the security. Now, a quantum computer will be able to solve that factoring problem in a pretty trivial amount of, of effort. And so that is the quantum computer threat. The idea that it will be able to be applied to those classes of problems that rely on factoring big numbers. And so we can see this coming. The algorithms are understood. The technology um, for building a quantum computer has kind of slid from the will it be built to when it will be built. Right? It's mostly an engineering problem now. It's not, it's not a fundamental theoretical, we have to we have to have a massive breakthrough to create a quantum computer. It is down to the point where now we've got a lot of hard engineering problems to solve, and it will be years before a quantum computer emerges. But given that we know that there is, uh, there's an approaching threat like that, we're working very hard across government to solve that problem. So last year, National Security Memorandum 10 was put out by the White House to drive the government's adoption of quantum-resistant technologies. NIST has been working on the commercial public standards for the types of algorithms that will protect commercial and industry data 
from um, quantum computers. NSA similarly has a classified suite of algorithms, but we're also going to be endorsing a, a set of NIST standard algorithms for use in interoperability between classified and unclassified, interoperability between U.S. and allies, and and even for commercial solutions for classified, which is a group of standards that let us use commercial products to protect U.S. government national secrets, and, and those will rely on those public standards. So we're on a journey where the national security systems will be upgraded and secure by 2034 is the goal. We're encouraging commercial entities to think about this and start inventorying their encryption use um, so that they can then get on a path to similarly arrive at a secure place before quantum computers. And a lot of industry is also now prototyping the the NIST candidate algorithms that were published so that they can start to understand how to put them into their architectures, the, the compute impact and the changes they have to consider. So we're learning a lot about the implementation, which will be really important because um, you can have a theoretically um, secure capability and make an implementation mistake that still leaves you vulnerable. So we've got a lot of work ahead. This um, can be thought of kind of like a Y2K problem. We see it coming. It's throughout the ecosystem, and it's going to take deliberate effort to identify and then address all of the places where quantum vulnerable activities are taking place. It's Y2Q. Let me ask you a question about this, Rob. And obviously, without giving away any sources and methods, but how confident are you that the United States government will know when an adversary has actually created a functional quantum computer that can break current encryption? Well, I I think you can understand that's got to be a a focus for us to know those threats. I talked about one of the things that is fundamentally different about the cybersecurity mission at NSA is we're doing everything threat informed. Um, So we're using our capability to understand when adversaries have found a flaw in our current encryption or our current cybersecurity activities. And so that will continue to be extended to all threats against our information. And so uh, General Nakasone wears a hat as the national manager for national security systems. So he's responsible for the safety and security of all those classified networks, warfighting networks, intelligence um, networks. And he delegates to me the responsibility as national manager to keep those secure. And a key piece of that is developing the intelligence to understand the threat landscape and then giving the directives and guidance um, that keeps us ahead of those threats. Well, if I were going to translate that into guidance for CISOs, these are my words, not yours. I would tell them, assume it's going to happen uh, during your working lifetime and you need to worry about it, CISO. Agree. Agree. They should be, like I said, the first step is to start to understand your ecosystem and inventory the, those capabilities. And then um, 
we as the U.S. community, NIST, CISA, NSA, will be encouraging the major providers to start building it into the ecosystem. And then it will leave the edge cases and bespoke stuff um, to others to then close that last mile. But, um, you know, it's going to be one where you'll have to have detail and rigor. So, for instance, everybody thinks about confidentiality when we talk about breaking encryption. But public key cryptography is also a key element in the authentication protocols that, that secure the Internet. And, and so people have to recognize it's not just about the confidentiality of your information. If you have the skeleton key that unlocks authentication, um, that's a pretty heinous threat as well. Can I press on the timing point, though, in a couple of different ways? I mean, first, do you guys and can you publicly say that you either assume or assess that the PRC or other adversaries are currently gathering up and storing encrypted data now in hopes of developing decrypt capabilities, you know, in the future while the information remains relevant on the one hand. And then on the other, I think you said 2034 is your rollout. I mean, you know, we had a little scare a while back from an academic paper that suggested maybe that Chinese had developed a cryptographically relevant quantum capability, or at least could do so quickly. Do you have a contingency plan if uh, you do suddenly learn that they're further ahead than you thought? Is it just accelerating the current plan or is it does it look differently? So both of those questions seem to me emphasize the need to possibly be taking action sooner than the official timeline. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think we have a well thought out timeline. We're working to that timeline. There are a number of capabilities that are already quantum secure. So as I mentioned, there's Public key cryptography is one of the the use cases that is vulnerable. There's symmetric cryptography where you have secret keys and you you know they're they're prepositioned um, so that you can communicate using those secret keys and the knowledge of those keys is what protects the underlying system. A significant amount of our capability is already quantum resistant because of that capability. So there, there are channels and operational methodologies we can use to have what will be quantum resistant communications. And good luck if you're recording them today because they are already quantum resistant. Outstanding. Okay. So that's like on the submarine in the movie where they break open the little envelope to match the key. No comment. <laughs> That's an example of something that would be quantum resistant. Yes, but right. but there are electronic systems that you know you can pass your data through um, that does symmetric key encryption that would be quantum immune. Can you talk a little bit more about your relationship with NIST? I mean, NIST is developing for the civilian world uh, these quantum resistant algorithms, as you described, and and you said you're validating. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about your current relationship and maybe, you know, how it's evolved from a historical relationship, which was, you know, not always without some bumps in the road, I guess. Yeah. So the NIST relationship goes back years and uh, NIST has the responsibility for the public standards um, to include cryptography. NSA, you know, I'll go back to that. It takes a thief to catch a thief. NSA in exploiting others' cryptography has developed practical understandings of what works and what doesn't. 
And so we are always there supporting and reviewing the work of NIST to make sure that something we understand in the classified realm couldn't be applied and produce a weakness inside the standards that they're proposing. And the current versions of um, quantum-resistant algorithms have been brought through that rigorous evaluation in the public scrutiny, in the, the government capabilities that NIST brings, but also in the classified world. And, and we have um, exceptional confidence in that. Now, one of the important things as we build quantum-resistant cryptography is we have to make sure that while it's quantum-resistant, it's also classically-resistant. It does you no good if it resists a quantum computer, but it has a tractable flaw that can be um, solved through traditional cryptanalyst methods. So we work across all of that space um, in collaboration supporting them. Great. Well, we're closing in on the on our time limit, but I I definitely want to ask you one other question because again, Brian and I do talk to people in the private sector, and you know, at the pointy end of things, I mean, if a U.S. company is involved in developing new technology, it might want to consult with you with its product roadmap or something because you guys are so good at finding potential vulnerabilities. But on the other hand, they may worry that. If they show you the roadmap, you'll find 10 vulnerabilities and tell them about five, uh, meaning you keep five for your own exploitation. Do you have anything you want to say to a company that is facing that conundrum? Let me add to that before you answer, Rob, because that, that's, that's a spot on. But another concern that company might have is that somehow uh, the government would reach in and classify their technology and make it much harder for them to sell it. Maybe address both of those. So sure, you know, in the in the world that that we operate in, in these collaborative engagements with companies, there is no part of this where we get to slide a piece of it off the books for the exploitation side. So if we're involved in, um, you know, support evaluation, an uh, in incident response, you know, what you've got is the power of NSA trying to make things secure. The default is we've got to have uh, secure by design, secure by default. Yes, we will, for the foreign intelligence mission, we will run independent activities to try to get the, the capability we need to collect and exploit information, but that's not where this cybersecurity activity is, and it's not what it's doing. I can't speak to the historic stuff, Brian, about, you know, reaching in and classifying something, you know, there were, there were certainly periods of time in the U S policymaking sphere where, you know, there was restrictions on encryption and the export controls of those things. The consultations with NSA aren't going to bring to light anything that, that would trigger that, you know, that doesn't mean coming to NSA is um, a get out of jail free for any of the existing rules, regulation, and commerce activities that have to occur for international business. But coming to work with us doesn't trigger any of that. That will be very good to know for, for a yeah. lot of people that we talk to. So just to close it out, though, you're probably best position of anyone that we've talked to to sort of answer this question, which is what should we be worried about now that we're not worried about in the private sector? that we haven't already touched on? 
I am very interested in where the AI, ML, large language models, and all of that are going to take us. I am not of the group that thinks, you know, a year from now, every software vulnerability will be rendered visible by some chat GPT, you know, check my check my binary and find me zero days. What I do believe is that it's going to be an accelerant for people to innovate. It will be a tool that makes people with bad intentions much more effective and fast. And so everything in the cyber arms race is about innovation and speed. And certainly some of the new AI ML tools will will increase speed. And so we've got to be thinking both on the what are the opportunities for it to accelerate defense at the same time that you know cyber criminals and nation states are playing with it to find ways that it's going to improve their attack cycle. So we're paying a lot of attention to that, trying to figure out um, where the technology is going, where the adversaries are experimenting, and and what it's going to mean for the ecosystem. But I think that's the really fast-moving place that none of us really understand where it's going to land, even in a year, let alone five. By the way, I full disclosure, I should say that Brian couldn't be here today. You've been interviewed by Chat. <laughs> I was just gonna <laughs> go with that. So, but but Rob, so just to refer back to something the boss said uh, as reported this morning, this is a world increasingly machines may be wrong, uh, often wrong, but never in doubt, I guess. But it is increasingly a world where the fast are going to eat the slow. Is that right? I, I would agree with that statement. Yes, yeah. there is an advantage to being fast. And you you can look just in the last few years, anytime there is a proof of concept dropped on the internet of the exploitation of a new zero day or end day, when that proof of concept hits, there's mass scanning across the internet um, to find vulnerable machines before the patch cycle takes up the protection of that vulnerability. And, you know, I think automation, scripting, and now AI ML is only going to decrease the cycle time, increase the speed of the attackers. Roger that. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. You've, you've been incredibly generous. We really appreciate it. I think our listeners are going to really, really benefit from the insights you've offered today. So thank yeah, you. Thank you, Rob. And thank you for your lifetime of service as well. Thanks. Great talking to both of you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahal, and your audio engineer for this episode was Rebecca Seidel of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.